The Philistines finally square off with Israel in a stalemate of forces. Having been deprived of God's spirit, Saul is no longer able to confidently lead Israel into battle, especially since the Philistines have presented Goliath as the deciding factor for either victory or defeat. This is the 34th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Samuel chapter 17 as we move into chapter 17 where the battle is set arrayed here before Israel and the Philistines. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 17. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet says this. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephesdemon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on this one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had an helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me, and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Paul writing to the church of Corinth, his second epistle to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians in chapter 10, verses 3, 4, and 5. By the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. We now come to a pivotal turning point in both Israel's situation and in the life of David and Saul. David has been brought into the courtroom of Saul as the sweet psalmist, if you remember, bringing relief to the tormented reprobate king. And as Saul descends into his madness, the Philistines, in the midst of Saul's madness, the Philistines now are preparing an all-out assault on Israel to once and for all time put an end to Israel's nation. This is what all wicked men and nations seek to do, to put an end to the witness of God. For the Philistines, this would be through military action. But there are other more subtle ways to accomplish the silencing of God's truth. In America, at this time in the history of the world, and in other anti-Christian nations, the method of silencing the truth of God is by redefining truth, or at least one of the methods, is by redefining truth, usually through the re-education of the masses, through lies, deceit, and propaganda. In some third world countries, 
this has been accomplished by force, especially when re-education methods either didn't work or they were too slow in providing the desired end, which was the end of God. These third world nations, these tyrannical nations, would use military force or violence to bring about their desired result. Now what is interesting about the place where the Philistines chose to wage this warfare is that its name is significant. Now remember... Everything in scripture is recorded for us for a purpose. And that purpose is to accentuate some aspect of the gospel. Either the victory of Christ, Christ himself, the wrath of God, the things of God's mysterious workings in providence. But everything is here for a reason. It's not just so that we have an historical account of where the battle took place. Because in our day, in 2021, it really doesn't matter where it was geographically. We're not going to go there and say, oh, look at how big that mountain was and how big that other mountain was. There was a, a gospel significance. And this is no different here in the situation that the prophet is expounding for us. Now, of course, it is God who is moving the armies to gather there for the distinct purpose of making a spiritual gospel point. Now, the scripture identifies this area of the battle with the name Ephes Demon. The place is actually called, by translation, the place of bloodshedding. It is a place of bloodshedding, and this is what will is going to happen here. It's going to be a place of battle where there would be blood shedding. But more specifically and more literally, its translation is a place of blood droplets, blood drippings. So it's already we see this ominous situation being constructed here by the Word of God where there's going to be bloodletting. The Strong's Concordance says that the name is also used as an analogy, meaning the fruit of the grape. And so already we can see an allusion to the gospel in this symbolic place of battle. And this connection will be made more apparent when the events of the situation between David and Goliath finally and fully unfold. Now for a moment, let's consider the battle structure. The battle is set in typical fashion where one nation establishes itself on one mountaintop and the opposing nation establishes itself on the opposite mountaintop. These elevations give protection to both sides since there is an advantage to the elevated nation against the other if there should be attack. It's very hard to, to attack going up a mountain so those who are on the top of the mountain can defend themselves very significantly and very successfully when they are in the elevated position. Now, since both sides are protected geographically, the battle would have to be fought in the valley below. We read this in verse 3. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley, and that would be the valley of bloodletting, the valley between them. The battle would then take place in that valley. This battle, however, because of the craftiness of the Philistines, takes on a completely different approach, a very different strategy. For whatever reason, the Philistines decide not to enter into a full-fledged armed conflict with Israel in the valley, which prompted this stalemate between the two nations. Who is going to come down in the valley? Because once you come down into the valley, the nation on the mountaintop would have the advantage. So who will do this? So we've got a stalemate here. Now, perhaps the Philistines remembered, and they should remember, that at one time Saul had been somewhat victorious against them. In the past, he and Israel was victorious. They had been victorious against the Philistines, and perhaps they were hesitant. They hesitated to engage, especially to go down into the valley to instigate this war. So, fearing Israel, the Philistines are not going into the battle. Everyone was afraid of the other. The Philistines afraid of Israel, Israel afraid of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines didn't know that they were shaking in their boots, but they weren't taking any chances. So in order to break the stalemate, the Philistines craftily send one man, the champion of their army, one man, the giant of Gath, which would be a provocation. He was going to provoke God's frightened people. 
And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So you have this incredible giant of a man descending the mountain, coming into this valley with a proposition for Israel. Now God's custom throughout the scripture is to use names of individuals to highlight certain truths. And this is no different in this case. In Goliath's case, this is no different. This man had a certain name from a certain city in order to set a gospel situation before us. Now notice that the giant, which the scripture identifies very clearly as a champion, is from the city of Gath. Gath literally means the wine press. Gath means wine press, the wine press. The term wine press refers throughout the scripture as the wrath of God. It's synonymous with the wrath of God. And if you remember from the book of Judges, Gideon executed the enemies of God, Oreb and Zeb, at the winepress. Symbolically, this was the wrath of God upon Oreb and Zeb at the winepress. Now, referring to the atonement and speaking as the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah says this in Isaiah 63.3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. So we see immediately this is a wrathful declaration that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to enter into the winepress of God's wrath, and then because he's victorious as the victorious champion of God, he is going to then bring his wrath upon the enemy nations of the world. We also see the winepress used as a symbol of God's judgment and wrath in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 15. In Lamentations 1.15, we read this, The Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. So again, the winepress, the crushing of the grapes. But perhaps the clearest identifying marks of what God means, the identifying remarks concerning the winepress, comes from the book of Revelation where John records this in Revelation 14 and Revelation 19. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse's bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword and with it he shall smite the nations. And he, speaking of Christ, shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So the winepress is significant because it refers to the wrath of God. Goliath's proper name, coming from the city of Gath, the city of the winepress, Goliath's proper name is also significant. And this is how God orchestrates all things in order to hide the gospel or aspects of the gospel. Goliath's proper name means to make naked or, or strip something, to make, to denude something, to tear away the outer covering, to strip it naked and make it conspicuous to all to see. The Strong's Concordance adds this, to denude especially in a disgraceful sense to openly advertise, appear, and to carry away into captivity, to disclose or discover or to bring someone to the point of shame that they would go into exile and make open and plainly to reveal and to make shameful, to uncover what is hidden. So Goliath, very practically speaking, is going to uncover the shame of Israel. He was going to propose a challenge who is going to be brave enough? Because perhaps, perhaps, they had heard of the madness of King Saul. Perhaps they heard that he was no longer God's man and there was rumblings in the courtroom. And perhaps they knew that he was a coward anyway. So they bring the challenge to the doorstep of Israel in order to make naked, to reveal, 
the hypocrisy, the apostasy, and the cowardice of the entire nation of Israel. And so what we have is a man who symbolizes God's wrath and also something that strips naked, discovering, uncovering, and openly disclosing something that has been hidden to a shameful end. Now the only thing that does that is the law of God. The law of God reveals to us our nakedness. So I believe in one regard, in a very real sense, Goliath of Gath is a picture, and we'll see this fleshed out throughout the battle and later on, is a picture of the law of God who stands against the cowardice church depicted by ancient Israel and of course all mankind with the threat of God's wrath, the winepress of his righteous indignation, stripping men's cloak of covering their religiosity to make them bare and naked before God as a people condemned. It is the law of God that not only condemns but also reveals the sinful nature of men. How do you know that you're a sinner? How do you know that you are not perfect before God? By the law of God. It's our mirror. It's what we see and we look at it we say, I cannot live up to the commandments of God. I cannot fight all by myself. I cannot defeat all by myself or satisfy all by myself the Goliath of Gath. But there is one who can. It is the law of God that not only condemns but also reveals the sinful nature of man. One other point. The scripture identifies Goliath as a giant. So not only is he a champion, he's a giant. And this is interesting since Job identifies God as a giant who runs upon him in his wrath. Note how Job is actually anticipating the Lord Jesus Christ's agony. Now, if you think about this, Job is speaking as a type of Christ. Now, remember, Job had all of these things put upon him, all these curses put upon him, just like Jesus had all of our sin put upon him. So Job now is speaking in Job chapter 16, Job now is speaking in Job chapter 16 as the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, as Job, but as the Lord Jesus Christ. And note the language he uses. Beginning in verse 6. Though I speak, my grief is not assuaged. And though I forbear, what am I eased? But now he, God, hath made me weary. Thou hast made desolate all my company. And thou hast filled me with wrinkles, which is a witness against me. And my leanness rising up in me beareth witness to my face. He, speaking about God, he teareth me in his wrath, who hateth me. He gnasheth upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpeneth his eyes upon me. Notice Job is looking at God as his enemy. They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. God hath delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he had broken me asunder. He had also taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. His arches compass me round about. He cleaveth my reins asunder, and doth not spare. He poureth out my gall upon the ground. He breaketh me with breach upon breach. He runneth upon me like a giant. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin, and defiled my horn in the dust. My face is foul with weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. He runneth upon me like a giant. Now I believe that in one sense... Goliath of Gath represents God as he comes upon the people of God who are fearful, who need a David, who need a Christ to beat the giant, to come upon the law of God in order to satisfy its requirements, to satisfy and put away the law's indictments, threatening wrath if they do not find a man to successfully fight against and deliver Israel. And of course, this is none other than David. This is none other than David, the great type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man of war and the deliverer of his people. No one could beat Goliath but David. No one could satisfy the law's requirements but David. And so, the challenge goes out 
that if one of the Israelites kills Goliath in a one-on-one, a mano-a-mano battle, then Israel will be liberated and they would then be able, as a liberated people, they would be able to take dominion. If they fail, then they will be slaves to the wicked nation, condemned under the wrath of the Philistines. And so the challenge goes out. Verse 8. And Goliath stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine? And ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me if he be able to fight with me and to kill me. Then will we be your servants. Liar. They had no intention of serving Israel. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. Now consider the detailed description of the threat. This champion was not only a big man, he was a really big man. He was a giant of a man. Notice, and there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. According to this measurement, Goliath was nine feet tall, nine inches. Nine feet, nine inches tall. Almost ten feet, just shy of ten feet. That's almost as tall as this room. And he was not a skinny mini. He was a big man. The lesson here is this, as we shall see. It's very practical. It doesn't matter how big or how strong an enemy of God is. It only takes faith to destroy him. And in this case, it only took a young man, a shepherd boy, a killer of giants, defeating a lion and a bear in order to defeat Goliath of Gath. Notice how the apostle puts it this way. He says, In 1 Corinthians 1, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised, like that shepherd boy, which God hath chosen, Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Goliath was going to meet his match in a shepherd boy that was despised by the Philistines. Notice the number six is the focus. Six cubits and six pieces of armor. He also had a spear which the head weighed 600 shekels. And so you have all together six, six, and six. Six, six, and six. Which, as we know, is the number of man who by nature refuses to seek after God, but rather seeks to be as God. And it is this which condemns man under the law. John tells us that the number six, 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 is the number of man herein is wisdom. Revelation thirteen eighteen. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. The literal Greek says the number of man, not the number of a man, but the number of man, the number of Adam, the number of the Adamic nature. And his number is 603 score and 6. And he likens this man to a beast. As the proverb writer and the psalmist always speaks of man as beast-like. The three sixes seem to be an indication that man seeks to be three as the Godhead is three in one. He seeks to be man, but he seeks to be God. And as we shall see, this idea of six further confirms Goliath as a symbol of judgment against sinful and rebellious man. Next, God describes some of the giant's armor. Notice verse 5. And he had an helmet of brass upon his head. Why? Why? Tell us. Why even bother? Because it means something. It's symbolic. He had a helmet of brass upon his head and was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was, and here's another number, 5,000 shekels of brass. 
So whenever we read of brass, whenever brass is used in the scripture, it also refers to judgment in one way or another. As in the brazen altar, the brass altar on which the sacrifice was made, or the description of the Lord's feet in Revelation chapter 1. His feet were like burned in a fernery fire, and they were like brass. Much of the furniture in the tabernacle was made of brass, signifying judgment. So when they went into the tabernacle, they would understand that God is the judge, and He comes with judgment. If not for the sacrifice, everyone would be judged under the wrath of God. So here we have brass signifying judgment. But in these cases, it refers to the judgment connected to the atonement and the judgment that God will bring upon man who does not have a David to fight and be victorious over the Goliath. We see this symbol of brass used in Samson's case, who is also used as a type of Christ because when the Philistines captured him and fettered him with brass, they put out his eyes. Goliath's head. Notice this Helmet was upon his head and it was brass. The headship of the giant was protected by a pure wrath and judgment. And this is because the law shows no mercy. Think about the law. Does the law show mercy? No. The law has no mercy. The law says this is what it is. If you violate it, this is the, this is the result. This is the judgment. Because the law shows no mercy. Its head is only wrath to who it seeks that disobeyed it. The symbol of wrath and judgment continues with the description of the rest of Goliath's armor in verse 6. Greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. Judgment, judgment, and more judgment. You see, Goliath was all business. One thing, one thing only, was in Goliath's mind to kill those who could not defeat him. He was all business. The law is all business. And the law's business is judgment to the unbeliever. Now, of course, to the righteous, it is a light and a lamp. No longer condemning, but a glorious guide of truth. But to the unrighteous, to the fearful, for the disobedient, to ancient Israel in their apostasy, to Saul and his armor bearers, judgment. Next, God describes Goliath's weapons of war. Verse 7. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed, here it is again, 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. Now, when God refers to the metal iron, he uses it in a negative way, referring to strength as in the strength and power of judgment and oppression. So iron is something of, of a very hard metal which is symbolically used as judgment and oppression. Chariots of iron by the enemies of Israel was speaking of their oppressive nature and their judging nature against Israel because Israel did not have chariots of iron. We see this in the following verses, defining the symbology behind the use of iron. To apostate Israel, he speaks of iron as a type of judgment in Leviticus 26.19 and Deuteronomy 28.23. Notice, and I will break the pride of your power, he's talking to the apostate Israelites, and I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. Judgment, judgment, oppression, judgment. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. Judgment. In other words, your prayers will not be heard. The heaven is over you is judgment. It's judgment. It's, it's brass. The earth that is under you, iron. It will not yield its covenant promises to you. This is what Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 is talking about. Of strength and oppression, we read in Numbers 35 and in Deuteronomy 3 and 28 and then in Judges 4. And if he smite him with an instrument of iron so that he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. For only Og, king of Bashan, remaineth of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Again, iron, judgment, oppression. Therefore, shall thou serve thine enemies, verse 48 of Deuteronomy 28, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things, and he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. Judges 4.3 And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he hath nine hundred chariots of iron, and twenty years he mightily oppressed 
the children of Israel. So these words have symbolic meanings. When Christ finally accomplishes his total dominion conquest over all nations, John, drawing from Psalm 2, says this, in Revelation 2.26, 12, 5, and 19.15. And he that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he, speaking of Christ now, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And she brought forth a man-child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, that's Christ, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Revelation 19.15 Out of his mouth go the sharp sword, this is Christ again, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So we see symbolism here and symbolism there, expounding to us in symbology, in glorious language, the gospel, the judgment of God, the deliverance of God, the righteousness of God, the law of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. These passages are looking at the fulfillment of God's promise in Psalm 2 concerning the mission of Christ, when we read in Psalm 2, verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel to all those who offend The fact that Goliath had a spear which was made of iron seems to connect with judgment as well. Perhaps even connecting it with Christ's judgment since the law comes to judge the unrighteous. And since on the night of the Lord's betrayal they came to him with swords and staves or swords and spears. Matthew 26, 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. And it was, as you remember, the spear that pierced the Lord's side. Again, a symbol of judgment. While suffering under the wrath of God, it pierces his side and out comes blood and water. Significant salvation through the blood of Christ and by the washing of the water of the word by the spirit of God. John 19.34, but one of the soldiers with the spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. Very symbolic. Is it literal? Is it historical? Does it mean that he was actually, he actually died? And you hear pastors all the time say, well, you know, after you're dead, you know, the, the water kind of accumulates and, and it gets into the lungs and so we knew he was dead. Fine! We know he's dead. The Bible tells us he died. What does it mean? Is there something greater? Is there something more glorious? Is there some gospel message? Absolutely, absolutely. And as a result of that atoning work, the blood of Christ is shed and the water of life is poured out. Now there's one other, one other possible addition to the description of Goliath's articles of war. His spear was given a very specific identifying name, a weaver's beam. Very big, obviously it was a tremendous piece of lumber. This was a big, thick stick, giant size. And its handle was able to hold the spearhead, which weighed very, very heavily. But why identify it as a weaver's beam? Why in such a way? Is there something significant there? Or are we making just something out of it which it doesn't there? I do not believe that as we compare Scripture with Scripture. I believe there's something to be said here. Why wouldn't God then be consistent here concerning the beam by giving measurements as he did the other articles? Now I believe he's also making a point by calling it a beam that is so big that it's as big as a weaver's beam. Why a beam? Well, perhaps God is calling our attention to blindness. Because... When God judges a people, He blinds them. Judgmentalism and pride blinds men. And so Jesus tells us this in Luke chapter 6. And why beholdest thou the mote in thine brother's eye, but perceiveth not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either How canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out the first, cast out first the beam that is in thine own eye, then shalt thou see clearly to put out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. You see, Israel at this point was so blinded by their pride, their hypocrisy, and their presumptuousness, to the point that they had a weaver's beam in their own eye, thinking that Saul, a mere man, who typifies the fallen Adamic nature, could deliver them from the dreaded Philistine without the intervention of God. 
And yet they knew, many of them knew, even at that point that Saul had lost himself, his composure had been lost and he had begun to become mad. So Israel was so blinded by their pride that God says, Goliath has this weaver's beam. And of course there's a very practical lesson here also. The weapons of our warfare for the saint of God are spiritual and only Christ can deliver us from sin and the tyranny of man. And that's what Paul explains to us in our New Testament reading. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Even though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. Now, do we use fleshly weapons of war when necessary? Absolutely. But David, using a weapon of war, a mere slingshot, of course, his weapon was not the slingshot. His weapon was faith. His weapon was the weapon of God. And they are mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and everything that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And what was Goliath doing? He was exalting himself against God. God's word is what changes cultures because it changes mankind. And so it is the ultimate weapon of our warfare. Again, it doesn't mean, and I hasten to say this, that there is never a time when God's people must physically protect that which God has bequeathed to them as stewardship, which includes, but not limited to, their family, their possessions, their safety, their liberty, but most of all, the church of the living God and its unbridled declaration of the law and the gospel. So there is a time as David would pray that God would teach him how to war, but only through faith. Okay, so, having presented him as the Philistine champion, Goliath defies and taunts God's people because that is what the enemy does. And God's people were quaking in their boots. And until we are reconciled to God and His law through Christ, we will quake in our boots the law will be our enemy. The law will say that you're condemned to hell without the Christ. That's why we need reconciliation. Goliath knew that he was stronger than any single man in the entire nation of Israel. He could smell the fear. Wicked nations that are tyrannical could smell the fear. And they're smelling the fear coming from the pulpits today. And it's a stench in God's nose. Goliath could smell the fear of Israel. But what he did not count on was that God was on the side of one man, bigger than the giant, bigger than Goliath, bigger than the wrath that he promised Israel. And that man was David. He was a faithful man whose faith made him as bold as a lion even in the fearful face of the giant. Now consider once again Israel's response to the challenge. What a shameful testimony. God's nation, God's people, quaking in their boots, they're terrified. And when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine blaspheming God, they were dismayed, disappointed, beside themselves, and greatly afraid. They weren't just afraid, they were quaking in their boots. What a shame, what a disgrace. The very man that was chosen as Israel's champion Saul was just as terrified as the rest of the nation. And that's pretty ironic since they chose Saul because they thought he would fight the Philistines. And yet he was hiding in his tent. And now the chickens were coming home to roost. Saul is now exposed for what he really was, a coward. And that's what Goliath was doing. He was exposing Saul. He was denuding him. He was revealing to Israel, here's the man that you thought was such a victor. No longer head and shoulders above the people, but cowering like a beaten dog with his tail between his legs, just like everybody else. But the real problem here, the root of Israel's fear, was God's grace of courage was withheld from them. God was withholding His grace of courage. He was withholding that measure of faith that they needed so desperately to show them what they were and what they needed. You see, it takes the intervention of God upon a man's soul to be courageous. You're not strong yourself. You're not courageous. You might think you're brave now when the enemy is not at the door. But when the enemy is at the door, what we need more than anything else is the faith of God 
the grace of God, giving us the faith to stand strong even when it perils our own lives. You see, it takes the intervention of God to be courageous. Israel, including Saul, was void of that grace of bravery in the face of fear. David, David on the other hand, was bold in the face of that very same fear. What was the difference? The grace of God upon the man's heart. Without God's deliverance, Israel was to be destroyed and taken into abject slavery. All because they failed to trust God. That is the message. When we are fearful, we will be taken captive. Remember what Goliath's name meant. To bring into exile. To shame, to expose, and then to bring into exile, to bring into captivity. If we remain fearful, it means we're faithless. And if we're faithless, it means we will go into abject slavery. All because Israel did not trust in their God as their lawgiver, king, and judge. Let's consider first a review of the practical, looking at Goliath as the enemies of the church. God's enemies will always try to intimidate the church by flexing its muscles. But he's a defeated foe in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a default position of all tyrannical establishments, especially the Leviathan state. Secondly, the fear that comes upon the church from the intimidation is due to a lack of the grace of faith and trust. So, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know when a church is fearful, when the people are fearful, they lack faith. They lack the courage that faith produces. The fruit of faith in the face of tyranny, in the face of fear, is courage. Naturally, when the powers that be intimidate and threaten, the initial response is fear and concern, and that's a natural thing. So, do we fear? Do we get afraid? Oh yeah, that's natural. But that's when we must stop and reset our minds and look to God, who has promised, who has said over and over and over, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, I am with thee, to lead you into a prosperous way. I am with thee, fear not, fear not. How many times has he said, fear not, fear not, fear not, until he's blue in the face, telling us, don't be afraid, because I am with thee. But when we look to the left, when we look to the right, as Peter did, to the waves of the sea, we become afraid, and that's it, that's it, we sink. We cannot be like Saul, nor can we be like fearful Israel when the Goliaths of this world threaten. Thirdly, the giants of intimidation will always be met with the victorious Christ to deliver his people in the same way that David met Goliath and delivered his people from the intimidation and tyranny of the wicked Philistines. We can count on that. But there's an eschatological lesson here as well. Certainly, the historical and the practical lessons are valuable, but where, again, is the gospel message? We have to keep looking for the gospel message. As already stated, I believe that Goliath represents not only the wicked of the world, not only the tyranny of the world, but the real enemy of mankind. The real enemy of mankind is the condemning power of the law of God. Notice what Paul tells us. That the strength of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. This means that it is the law that condemns the sinner, and as long as we are under the power of sin, apart from the redeeming, liberating grace of Christ, we are under the condemning power of the law. This is why Jesus Christ's deliverance is so important. It is God's law that condemns man for his rebellion. The only way for the sinner to be loosed from that condemnation of the law is to be delivered from the law's condemning power and then we are translated from being under the condemning power of the law to be under the influencing power of the law as our guide and our directive. Paul tells the Ephesians that only through the work and sacrifice of Christ can this be accomplished. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he explains in Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 14, for he is our peace. What does that mean? Well, peace between God and man. Because naturally, man and God are at war. It happened at the fall of the garden, in the garden in Eden. Man became enemies with God and declared war upon God. So the peace that is promised is the peace between God and and man. For he is our peace 
who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. As a result of Christ's atoning work, Paul is then able to say this, Romans 8, 1 and following, For there is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak, through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But there is one other point here to be made. In a real sense, the enemy of unredeemed mankind is God Himself. The real enemy that men should fear is God to the unbeliever and to the apostate, those who have fallen away, who have no faith and no grace, God is the enemy and the adversary of man. Jeremiah, in his lamentation, and we have to think about God the way God defines himself. We have to stop thinking of Jesus Christ as this this, this, this long, blonde-haired, flowing, cow-eyed, blue-eyed Savior with a little lamb in his hand. He is that to us to those who have been called by His name. But to rebellious, blasphemous man, He is not. He is the enemy of blasphemous man. He is the enemy of the tyrannical state. He is the enemy of the tyrannical magistrate. He is the adversary. He becomes the adversary and the enemy of rebellious man. Notice what Jeremiah says. When he identifies God as he comes with his wrathful vengeance upon the rebellious. Notice Lamentations 2, 4 and following. Speaking of God, he has bent his bow like an enemy. Remember, Jesus is likened to the mighty hunter who shoots out his arrows. He's bent his bow and he shoots like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion, those with an outward show of religion. He poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was an enemy. He had swallowed up Israel. He had swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds and hath increased in the daughter of Judah. Mourning and lamentation. We have to start looking at God as he is revealed in Scripture. Now, in the beginning... Before the fall of Adam, Adam was the federal head. He was the head of the entire human race. He held the position of headship over all flesh. Or to put it another way, Adam was the first husband over all flesh. But after the fall, when man through Adam fell into sin and rebellion, the law became the head of rebellious mankind. Or to put it in another way, the law became unregenerate man their head and their husband. Sinful man is under the headship and the dominion of the law which acts as, because he's a sinner, an evil taskmaster. Because what does the law say? Here's what you must do. Here's what you must do. And yet, you can't do it. It's a taskmaster. Make bricks without straw. Try to keep the law. You can't because you're a sinner. Try to keep the law because you're falling in Adam. Try to keep the law. I am your husband. I am your taskmaster. I am Pharaoh. I am your head. So sinful man is under the headship dominion of the law which acts as an evil taskmaster. Now Paul explains this using the examples of husbands and wives. Notice Romans chapter 7. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband is dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while the husband liveth, she be married to another man, 
she is to be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law, or in other words, dead to the condemnation of the law by the body of Christ, so that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, so that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death, because you couldn't keep the law. But now, we are delivered from the condemning power of the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So the law is mankind's headship. And when we disobey the law, what does the law say? What does it condemn us for? If it is our head and our husband, it says adulterous. And the penalty for adultery is death. Goliath, as a picture of the condemning power of the law of God, is functioning as a tyrannical enemy over Israel, whose king is Adam, represented by Saul. Moreover, Goliath is also acting as the legal head and husband over Israel. He has them under his sway. And the only way for Israel to be delivered from the tyrannical giant is if he is killed. And this is what Paul is referring to. The condemning power of the law must be put to death as head and husband, so that we might be freed from the headship and husbandry of the law, so that we could be married together. And this is why it's so important to recognize that when David killed Goliath, he had to take off his head, so that David would become the new head. And then Israel had a new head. He takes off Goliath's head with his own sword, symbolizing the fact that Israel now had a new head, and the victor using the sword, David, the son of Jesse, a great type of Christ, using the sword, would take the head of Goliath to be the new head over Israel to liberate them and to bring them out of the bondage of death into the newness of life. We will consider more details concerning this battle when we continue in our series on 1 Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.